My two guests today are scientists. Dr. Rachel Burks is a chemist, an analytic chemist. Analytical chemist? How do you say that? From St. Edward's University in Austin. And Dr. Tessa Durham Brooks is a biologist at Doan University in Nebraska. And uh, they once uh, were faculty at the same university. And when they realized that so many of the young scientists that were coming into graduate programs in science were lacking uh, computer science skills, they did something about it. That's what we're going to talk about today. The topic is about whether you can be a scientist anymore and not have some foundation in computer science. I think it's one of the topics that um, is easy to miss. If you are a parent who's um, hearing a lot from educators, maybe a, a principal or friends about um, the importance of computer science education, uh, a lot of educators that I talk to um, wanna know as we all should about the practicality of computer science education. I think this is a really important contribution to that understanding. Um, so many of these professions and certainly uh, the, the sort of um, cousin, brother and sister professions in the fields and pathways in STEM uh, are requiring some understanding of computation and coding and that's what we're going to talk about today with Tessa and Rachel. I'm so grateful that they were able to join me. I invite you to chime in. If you listen to the episode, you have a strong opinion about whether we can have sciences without computer science any longer. Um, and at what point in a young person's trajectory should they start being introduced to computation? Um, chime in on Twitter. I'm at M.A. Lesser. Before we get started, please do go back to the platform where you downloaded the show, and if you believe in what it is that I'm up to, I hope that you will rate and review the show uh, and show your support in that way. I thank you tremendously for that. On with it. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Tessa, Rachel, thank you so much for joining No Such Thing. I have uh, so many questions for the two of you, but uh, you guys are joining at a time when, um, for the show, I'm about to do a series of episodes on uh, computer science education. And one of the ways that uh, you two... Um, sort of emerged as an important conversation for me to have was that uh, Rachel and I serve on a task force for broadening participation in um, STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math that's being uh, sponsored by the National Science Foundation. And um, the two of you, a biologist and a chemist uh, trained, uh, and, and mortal enemies, mortal no. enemies. And we, <laughs> Rachelle and I were talking about um, how much work you guys are doing to sort of um, uh, I don't want to say remediate, but uh, to, to sort of grow the identity for scientists 
to be inclusive of computer science because uh, what uh, part of what I didn't realize as a non-scientist is um, how important computer science is to the uh, to that identity uh, if if you're going to be doing it in a, in practical and sort of working ways and so. Uh, at least this is what I understand from our conversation. So the conversation I wanted to have from the two of you is to talk a little bit about uh, the identity of the scientists at this point in time and how important or unimportant you guys think it is uh, to be thinking of computer science as a, a part of the essential toolkit for scientists. Um does that sound like the right conversation? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, so, mm-hmm. so, um, so here's, here's where I wanted to start. Tessa, this is the first time you and I are chatting. Um, but I want to read something from the bio that I pulled off of um, your page on uh, Doan University, which is in Nebraska. Um, yeah. Right. So there is this sentence that said uh, there's there's two sentences, actually. So uh, using image analysis and computational approaches, the influence of the parental environment can be detected in the growth of subsequent progeny throughout development. I'm interested in investigating how this information is passed from one generation to the next, et cetera. I, I only understand like six words in in those two sentences. <laughs> but um you are actually studying uh, the genetics of plants. Am I right about that? Yep. Yeah, basically, I study nature versus nurture in plants. Outstanding. So, um, but this these couple of sentences sound to me like um, uh, code and computation are going to be essential to the work that you're doing. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think in biology, we've always tried to find... Um, new ways to make observations. So observation is really important in biology. So you think about the microscope and how it revolutionized our whole understanding of how life works. And so really there's just different variations on that theme across, you know, over all of the hundreds of years that biology has existed. Um, And um, imaging is kind of really big right now because we can easily capture images and we can do it at higher resolution and we can capture them um, in high resolution as far as spatially where we can um, see really small things um, in high detail, but also we can collect images quickly so that we can watch a process happening over time. And so biologists are really interested in using images as data um, and we've done that uh, just on our own, but as we try to really answer questions with more sophistication, it requires that we actually get numbers from those images rather than just um, making observations. Um, I guess descriptions of what we see. We want to we want to quantify it, and that requires then that we use a computer um, to to do something with those images. I mean, actually before computers were there, people would just capture images and 
maybe print them out on a piece of paper and get the ruler out and make measurements. Um, they would project those images onto a whiteboard and make measurements, but we're getting a little more sophisticated um, so that we can now use computers and, and now in an era where we can, we have whole genomes and way too much information, then now we can go through much more data um, more quickly if we can get a computer to help us. So do I understand it right that a, a big part of specifically the context that you're talking about, a big part of what you're after is um, the difference between or sort of depends on the difference between analog and digital data? And and it, am I right that it's when science moved or move is moving to digital data it's that we get much more reliable understanding of, of what's actually happening? I, I don't know if more reliable is the right word or if it's just a more holistic, you know, like now we can look at a bigger picture, like instead of looking at one individual um, in an isolated context, mm. and we could measure that maybe really carefully in an analog way. Um, with a digital context, we can now look at you know, many genotypes, so lots of varieties and lots of conditions over time, you know, we can add all these dimensions on that gives us a bigger picture than we would have been able to do got it. in an analog way. I say got it like like it's totally clear to me, but I'm it, it's coming it's coming together. <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> And and uh Dr. Rachel Burks um, is joining us from St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas. And uh, Rachel, you're coming from a totally different discipline, um, although in a lot of people's minds, biology and chemistry are, are you know, not that different. But of it's course, the same. Of course, <laughs> to you too. These are different worlds. Um, can you tell me how um, this applies to chemistry and if it makes sense, um, maybe more about how you two are now uh, working together in in certain ways? I'm an analytical chemist. Kind of like what Tesla was saying about the microscope is that the entire branch of analytical chemistry is instrumentation and methods. Um, and so we're kind of, I always joke that we're the detectives of chemistry. We don't make chemicals, we find them and we build ways to find them. Um, and so, you know, I often tell my students that we're the business of doing chemistry. Like, how do you actually do observations? How do you get the data? How do you treat it? How do you develop something to actually say, this is how you should do that thing? So, um, you know, with that, imaging is another analysis tool. Um, and, you know, we, especially in chemistry, uh, you know, you look at stock photos of chemists, right? You have, we're gazing at some brightly colored solution. Um, so we've always been obsessed with color. Color tells us, you know, something about structure, which of course, in, in collaboration with biology, you know, we say structure function that goes together. Mm. Um, and then color also can tell a lot too about what has occurred, what is occurring, what is going to occur. Like the, the color information is actually, it's not just pretty, um, it's informative. And we, we have a lot of ways to track that. And we have, you know, some of the classic analytical tests 
to detect things change color. Um, they may have been colorless and so they will turn yellow um, or it'll go yellow to black. Um, and we, we've been developing those types of tests for a long time because the human eye is a great analytical device. Um, you know, we can tell various shades and some people are better at this than others. The intensity of the color can hint at concentration mm -hmm. um, and how much is there. Um, and of course, as time has gone by, human eye we know now is, is actually not that great mm -hmm. um, compared to, you know, other devices. And so, of course, we have spectrophotometers, which actually look at, you know, various wavelengths of light. Um, and those instruments are great and they've gotten cheaper by the year and smaller by the year. But, you know, they're they're still not in a lot of ways um, super cost effective. They can be limited as far as the amount of samples that you can look at. And, and like Tessa was saying, the volume the, of data that you can look at with images, you know, instead of screening one thing at a time. In, the, in a UV vis or even even if you have a plate reader, which will allow you to read maybe potentially, you know, 100 samples um, in a go, that could be an additional cost. And images, however, might, you know, besides actually looking at, you know, whole heck acres, right, or or all of the space, you know, like the, the work of image analysis that like astronomers are doing and, and that kind of information. It, is that when you look at images and, and then retrieve data from those images, you can get, you know, again, a holistic picture of what's going on in the entire environment. Um, and that data is always there. You're taking a snapshot of, of what's going on. And you might be interested in saying, at this time, I'm only interested in X. But since you have the image, right? In the words of, of the younger generation, you have the receipts. You can always um. go back and pull out different data. Yeah. And that's also, you know, when you, you talk to any kind of scientist, you know, especially biologists and chemists, you know, sometimes you take pictures or images, and I'm also a forensic scientist, you don't know what's important at the time, but if you can capture everything, and maybe, you know, at, at this time, A was important, but you go back and you realize that B through D, even noticed before is actually very pivotal and an image is a documentation of that that data is always there mm. you can pull it and retrieve it later which is really powerful um, and so i use uh, image analysis for colorimetry to look at different colors um, and tessa is a very often interested in, in morphology but also color um, and so we, but we, what we noticed though is, is when I was at Doan is that, you know, I was like, we, first of all, we realized we we're using the same imaging device, this one scanner. Um, we face a lot of the same kind of hardware software issues, very different projects with absolutely no overlap besides the, the approach, mm. the, the analytical device. But we realized that we could, you know, help each other and try to troubleshoot. And I and I got to go, thanks to Tessa, to a, a, a plant conference. Um, <laughs> I didn't know anything about. Not not the for key gardeners. Part is it was not for gardeners. This was like hardcore, like plant scientists. I, I you know, like you were saying, six words maybe I understood. But you know, the the key part was that it was still about images. It was still about the software to retrieve data from those images. And then when you have those numbers, 
you've got you know millions thousands hundreds of thousands sometimes a billion some of these images you know bits of data you've got to process them all we often are doing very similar statistical analysis might be applied in a different way what's the best way to do that what's the smoothest kind of single operation system to eliminate bottlenecks mm. so that's where we have this kind of venn overlap of being able to to solve those issues is and and help each other is in that we have a common challenge instead of having a common project we have a common way that we're trying to approach the work and even though we have very different applications oftentimes we can help each other and learn together because we've got to take a good image we've got to retrieve data from the image and then we have to process that data and mm. those things are unifying us across Again, astronomers, biologists, and all kinds of biologists, all kinds of astron radio astronomers, people that actually do IR and fluorescence, but it really runs the gamut and you realize that, so we're all having the same struggle. Hmm. Decent picture, get this data, process the data. Yeah. And, and I think that's, you know, and then showing that to our students too, that even though we're very different, we have this, you know, way that we can approach this and help each other, I think is is also a big goal of our project. So let me say say back what I think part just sort of a, a quick summary of what I think you just said, just so that I'm I'm understanding. It sounds like it's not that the projects you two work on are um, so similar. It's more that there's a, a heuristic, let me if I could call it. Uh, which is a, a fancy way of saying a sort of standard of, of practice that cuts across several scientific areas um, that revolves around uh, digital image capture and then the data analysis related to that image capture um, that has brought you together. So, so as scientists, what you're actually doing is honing the heuristic, um, not so much that uh, in this context, anyway, that the data is is um, I important across the two projects. It's more the the practice, right? I, I mean, I I think that's what I'm getting out of it. But also, sometimes, you know, you have so many different experts in a room. There's been time where I've learned stuff. I'm like, I didn't even think about it that way. Because mm. you know, chemists are programmed, even though it's a very diverse field, and biology is the same way you're programmed to look at a certain lens in a problem, in a certain way that we do things. Um, and so sometimes just hearing the approach of your, a love different type of expertise, but again, an expert in how they are approaching something um, or that they might be able to be like, I know why this is happening. Hmm. Um, and, and that's been really informative. So it's not just the, the process that we're, there's a there's unifying process, but it's also that the mindset is, can be very different in some areas. I mean, we often have a lot of overlap, you know, yes, good hypothesis, strong methodology, like you yeah, know, that kind yeah. of a thing. But there are some some frameworks that certain disciplines have that you're like, you're blowing my mind right now. Like mm. <laughs> that you just, I didn't even think of it that way. And, and, the, and the way they approach you know, problems. And I think the fun part too is the way a computer science student and faculty might approach a problem is going to be different 
potentially big, sometimes real big difference between how somebody who's like myself would come at it. And I'm a chemist who uses computation to, to inform my chemistry to help me be a chemist. Mm-hmm. I'm not a computer scientist who does chemistry. Mm-hmm. And I think the lens and I think your position and, you know, the environment that you kind of were, were brought up in academically, I think that all influences how you make decisions, how you think about problems, how you solve problems. And that stuff can be expanded. Your skill set can be expanded by hanging out with people totally in a different approach. Mm-hmm. And you could, and just like the students have seen an improvement in their computational thinking and their mathematical reasoning, I too, because you're just, you're hanging out with this different expertise and a different approach and you have to you know sink or swim sometimes yeah. <laughs> it's neat to make those those uh, realizations i don't know rachel if you were in this conversation that we had at some point um last semester when so we also work with computer science faculty and there's a computational biologist that we work with and we were talking about a problem and we were trying to understand why we were talking about it differently and the computer scientist said, oh, it's because computer scientists start with what they know and then they just make little incremental steps. It's like you start on something solid and you make little steps outwards to more solidity and mm. you just kind of you know, broaden your solid footing. But what biologists do is you like purposefully dive into the stuff you don't know. You, like mm. you dive into the abyss and then you float around until you find like, you know, something floating that you can hold on to and then you just start pulling those little pieces together so it's if you're coming at a problem from those two different perspectives it can actually be extremely powerful um, because as those who are working together you can you know maybe discover something that was impossible independently that's so interesting Um, so, so listen to this. I want to, I want to read something back to you and then I'll tell you where I pulled it from. Um, cause I think it's what we're talking about. Um, integrate qualitative scientific and technical information to support the claim that digitized signals are a more reliable way to encode and transmit information than analog signals. Uh, emphasis is on, this is just clarification, basic understanding that waves, uh, this is in the context of, of information transfer around um, measuring waves, can be used for communication purposes. Examples could include using fiber optic cable to transmit light pulses, etc. Uh, so maybe with my example, you can guess where this is from. Um, but but does, does this, I'll tell you in a second if you can't guess, um, does this sound like what we're talking about? I was going to say, I was going to blame physicists for whatever you just said. Yeah. But, uh, Ignore the second no. part. Uh, we're we're integrating that, qualitative, yeah. qualitative scientific and technical information to support the claim that uh, digital signals are more reliable than uh, analog signals. Well, I don't think that we're, our goal admission isn't saying, you know, digital is better than analog. No. Um, but we do a lot in the digital landscape. Uh-huh. And, you know, I think, I think if anything, the, you know, part of your work is, you know, is at least especially from an analytical perspective is 
Is it reliable? Is it reproducible? Is it in line with literature? If it's not, why not? Yeah. <laughs> um, and that doesn't mean that it's worse. It just means what's going on. Yeah. So, so and that's what you're saying, Mark, right? Is that like fiber optics is more reliable maybe than yeah. some other. So here's what, here's what I did. Here was my, my experiment was, uh, could I go and research to the extent that I had the time, what it is that the two of you are doing, the heuristic that you're putting together. And then could I dig into the next generation science standards and find Ooh. places where <laughs> the thing that you're doing is reflected in the things that young people are supposed to be doing in K-12. And um, now I didn't, I am not an NGSS expert, uh, certainly more expert than uh, many who have spent no time with it. Um, <laughs> but there are certainly those who know them better. So if I had kept digging, perhaps I'd get closer. But it seems that in the context, so this is obviously in the context of uh, waves and, and technologies, but um, but this was the closest I came. And, and part of what I was kind of getting at was um, trying to explore with the two of you um, how early we should be helping young people who are have an interest in science to be thinking about um, uh, the digital world and computation uh, as part of the identity of the scientist. I think it's really cool how you're talking about analog versus digital because I I teach um, human physiology and we talk about that quite a bit. Like, I think what that statement is saying is that a digital signal is more reliable. Is it more accurate? No, you know, um, is it more pure? You know, probably not, Mm. but is it more reliable? Yes, but it's interesting to understand you know, we talk about analog to digital in the context of a neuron, because that's exactly what a neuron does, is it takes an analog signal and it converts it into a series of action potentials. Mm. So it is the original A to D converter as far Isn't as I <laughs> But is it better? Is it, you know, what is it? Um, so I think the thing is, is our, like what I try to help students understand is that back in my day, I can talk to about analog and I know what that means from a visceral sense. Like I have experienced the dial that you turn up and down Mm. or the readout on a piece of paper and what it means to convert something to digital and what kind of information is actually lost, what information is retained. Because when we start talking about images as data, that's almost immediately where the conversation goes. What do we still have? What went away? Um, what can we discern from this? What can't we? And so it's, but, but the problem is that our students have been inundated with digital. I mean, they don't know anything else. And so it's this weird kind of, I, I've been experiencing this weird kind of um, um, dissonance with students that I hadn't expected is that I always just assume like, well, they're born in technology, so they're mm. going to get all this stuff. But maybe that's actually made it harder to like pick out, you know, the the signal from the noise in a sense, you know, yeah. what should you pay attention to? So, yeah, I mean, you have an entire generation that, you know, they don't, unless, you know, for the average student, if you said, you know, give me a quick definition of analog versus digital, they'd be like, sorry, what? Yeah. Um, because they don't, they, analog is, does it, it doesn't exist for them right. in the way that it did um, for us. But I think that, you know, 
I feel the same way. Sometimes I look at my students, I'm like, you've never not had Google. How do you not know? Right. Or like you have always had this, you know, not economics and things like that, but the idea of the price point of a personal computer and having a computer in your home or at least having access to it of, of Wi-Fi with smartphones or, you know, even a local library, um, everything, you know, this kind of Wi-Fi. Um, and there are, of course, deficiencies and things like that. Um, but the this kind of availability does not mean that you're not. That, that you just know, mm. right? Like you just know how some of these things work. Um, and so there's tons of great initiatives to do kind of, you know, basic computer literacy and even, you know, programming at younger and younger ages. Um, and so, you know, pr- you know, things like um, Women Who Code and Black Girls Code, they do kind of more, and Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts, you get like a whole badge nowadays. Mm. You know, we had to like, create fire and these kids are doing cool i think they also have the fire badge but they have you know the whole computing tech programming thing and they've got these fun events where you know they're they're learning about you know this kind of information that you know even 10 years ago you would have been like a freshman in college maybe before you got some of these you know cool little projects mm-hmm. that, you know, again, a lot of these two, some of these things can be pretty pricey. Um, but some of them, again, you know, can be near free, you know, event a couple of hours on a Saturday or, you know, a Tuesday or something like that, or universities will host, you know, kind of coding programming events. And of course, you know, certain schools have got things coming, you know, up earlier and earlier. And I think, you know, as I think that's just a sign of when the when you this has become such a part of everyday life that right now I feel like there's a deficiency even in my lifetime of going from you know when I was a kid back when you know T-Rexes roamed the earth <laughs> come uh, on and nobody <laughs> like a per- personal computer a laptop that's crazy right, right? and now it's everywhere and you know i mean just in this what i feel is a still feel sometimes is a short time span the revolution in computing and programming and computation continues to blow my mind that i could be watching netflix on a bus right (laughs) there's so many while you know editing a google doc Mm -hmm. like it's just it just goes like that and so with that kind of pervasiveness in our in every facet of our lives, I almost feel as if we're catching up. Up, we had this massive revolution, but we didn't have the education. Now we're going backwards. Everything is everywhere, but now we go back and we say, "Hey, maybe you should actually know how any of this works." Ah, uh, <laughs> I see what I see what you're saying. And so I feel like we're a little bit of catch up. Uh, you know, like yeah. now there's all these initiatives. Yeah. The the place where I, I thought you know, to go and, and explain, hey, this is Yeah. The place where I thought you were headed was that there there is such a thing as sort of the digital native and and I in a in a way, um, there is. But um but I I understand what you're saying, which is that um the stuff exists. We've had this sort of this influx and this this sort of hyper um, 
growth in uh, hardware and software and digitization. Um, but now, you know, the sort of the human element of how we really apply those things to innovation, uh, we need to catch up with the sort of processes by which we kind of bring bring uh, professionals into that system and we bring learners into that system and and I, I think is what you're saying. So so education's kind of catching up with um, with all of that, if I'm understanding you correctly. So um, and and this kind of leads into some of the stuff and and I was hoping that you would talk a little bit uh, between the two of you about the the Divas project. Okay, so as Rachel uh, spoke about us kind of bumping into each other um, here at Down. It led to um, it led to our ability to take advantage of an opportunity to apply for an NSF grant. So um, we we learned of this um, program within the NSF called the Improving Undergraduate STEM Education um, Program, and we thought it would be a perfect opportunity for us to work together to um, write a grant to help our students gain these skills that we know are really important in both of our fields. And so we teamed up and um, wrote a proposal for a project that would be called an, an on-ramp of, or a buffet um, of items, of interventions that we could um, expose natural science majors to, um, to help them engage with computation. And in all of these different interventions, we're testing their self-efficacy, so their how they feel about themselves or how they feel about computing, um, their attitudes towards it. And then we're also assessing their actual um, and intended career paths. And finally, we've developed a tool to measure computational thinking. And so as we were thinking about all this, we're like, how do we get natural science majors even interested in computation? Because you say computer you say math hmm. and all of a sudden they start running for the doors. Um, yeah. Really? So, so, so this is, it, yeah. it illustrates your point a little bit, Rachel, um, that regardless of how sort of digital native in, in quotes they are, um, these particular science students are n not so inclined as it relates to, to computers or computer science. I think sometimes too, it's like, wait, wait, I'm a biology or chemistry major. I can't take on an entirely new, like yeah. they're thinking like, I'm going to have to be a double major or, and also sometimes, you know, same thing in chemistry, this, this education is still kind of very classic, even though, you know, computers and chemistry go together like peanut butter and jelly the it's still at the undergraduate level sometimes they don't get that glimpse mm. and they don't realize it till grad school and that's a real rude awakening um and so it's just again i mean i think i think sometimes the biology departments with bioinformatics have done and sometimes with chemistry with pcam but that's already senior year mm. like trying to get it integrated so that they don't see it as being like oh man now i gotta go do this other thing that's completely not related right that, that totally divorced you know like oh now i have to go do this thing that doesn't even relate mm. to biology or chemistry what we're trying to do is no this is how we do our work it is part of our field. Mm. Yes, it can be its own field, but it is the bread and butter. It is the, the business 
it's it's an everyday kind of a thing. Yeah. And so also trying to weave that in at the earliest levels so that that kind of feeling of, oh, man, <laughs> mm. I got to go do this whole other thing. <laughs> and the other way we tried to get rid of the oh, man <laughs> sort of aspect was to come up with a bit of data that would be more interesting. So that's where the images came in. Like hmm. everybody can take an hmm. image. Um, images are fun to look at. Maybe they're not so scary. You know, they're, they're actually data, but they're, they're fun data to look at. And so that was our other kind of hypothesis is images are going to be the way to hook them in um, to working with computers. Hmm. So, and that's you know, what, the, you know, yeah. The smartphone images, you know, this is the hot new thing, especially in, in my group is we do that kind of research, but you know, the drone cameras and there's so much good work going on is to be able to share that too of the image is yes, it's a beautiful picture, but did you know this is all the information we got out of it? Like, yeah. I think that's also, and they, you know, they take images. This is not, a, a, you know, sometimes even to get to use an instrument like a scanning electron microscope. Mm. Yeah, we'll let you touch that after you've gone through this much training. Mm. And then maybe you can sit next to it and then you can maybe touch it. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And so with the camera, though, with images, it's like, you're already in there. Mm. You're in the mix. You're doing it day zero, you know? So I think that that's the, the barrier there. These are not like exotic devices that I'm afraid I'm going to break it. Or did you say this was $2.1 million? Sorry, what? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I think that that's part of that too, to get them in and feeling a bit comfortable. Isn't that interesting? So, yeah, and so I just remember when Rachelle and I were um, Skyping, of, over this proposal and we were thinking of all the keywords and when we came up with the acronym we knew it was a winner so so tell, Diva tell stands for, yeah go ahead yeah. <laughs> stands for digital imaging and vision applications in science so, i yeah. love it does a lot to students. yeah <laughs> and and how do how do your students respond to the acronym I think if anything, the students, they, they think it's funny. That's awesome. You know, like I'm a diva. And then, <laughs> you know, to, to be able to say that, um, and they know what it means, you know, it's a real mouthful. And I said, you know, us scientists, especially in, in, in analytical, we've got acronyms for sub methods of yeah. techniques of other methods, right? <laughs> like, yeah. And we always try to give them some funny, you know, thing. And so I, I think for the most part, it's, you know, I think they like it. I think like myself, they're like, wait, what does the S stand for again? Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I, I do want to clarify a couple. I, I try my best in this show um, to explain acronyms where they're coming up. You said at one point, uh, so NSF is the National Science Foundation for folks who haven't listened to previous episodes or, or are, are not connected to uh, our federal government's support or um, lack of support as it relates to current uh, time uh, for the sciences. So that's the NSF. Uh, we mentioned STEM, uh, which is science, technology, engineering, math. You said PCHEM. Physical chemistry. Physical chemistry, which I did not. Uh, I was adequately scared by the time my opportunity for PCHEM uh, came too. around. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so this is completely fascinating uh, to me, and on so many um, 
levels. And one of the things that I'm going to do is in the show notes for this episode, um, I'm going to link to the website where um, there's there's one page in particular where you're just sort of it's I think you're using it as sort of an introduction for students to how um, data is pulled from some of the digital images on uh, and I link to it from the divas website. Um, so I'm going to put that in the show notes so that, uh, and, and that example, I think you were using, it was, it was maze, uh, in that example. Um, and it was sort of illustrating using, uh, this, it was illustrating, uh, for the sake of this conversation, the really important intersection between the science and how that data is being used and the technology and how you as scientists uh, have to be so facile with that, um, with the imaging technology, but also how it gets then, uh, you know, converted into a digital landscape. So um, I will link to that. So here's, here's my question is, it sounds like... It sounds like we're agreeing that um, young scientists are still have to be pretty far along in their experience before they realize how important computer science is to the field, right? Because you were saying that even graduate students are coming in and kind of shy from the the computation and the uh, once you talk, start talking about computers and computer science. Um, so, so here's my question: If if you ha- if we were playing uh, Mad Libs, the uh, you know what I'm sure most listeners are familiar with Mad Libs, but uh, if we were just sort of filling in the blank, here's what I wish I had known about learning computer scientist as a scientist. Um, how would you fill in that blank? And if you could also say. Uh, at what point in your learning you think it would have been most appropriate uh, for you to start envisioning that part of your role? Um, say more about that. I would. I know for sure. My my misunderstanding was that computer science is more like playing with Legos than it is writing a poem. And what I mean is that with I didn't realize that computer science is like, oh, there's already a bunch of tools out there and you just get to put together to build the thing that you need. It's not like I have to sit there with a blank piece of paper and like have this amazing work. And I think if I would have realized that, I wouldn't have put so much pressure on myself as an undergrad. Like I actually did take some computer programming courses and I just felt like I'm not like, like, the analog of a brilliant poet, and I'm never going to get this. Because mm. um, what I've learned working with computer scientists is they're just really good at finding Legos and putting them together. Um, and I'm like, heck, I can put some Legos together, and I can make you know stuff that I like. Mm-hmm. And so it really lowered the barrier. And so I, as far as when I would have been able to do that, I mean, that's a great, great question. Like, I don't know, maybe really early, you know? I just, I really don't know. Uh, is really yeah, early. I hate myself for not doing it earlier. <laughs> is really early middle school or is really early as an undergraduate or younger? I'm thinking like grade school. Okay. I, yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah, that could have been figured out a lot earlier. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, so yeah, that... when you look at, you know, our code things where they have, you know, the block programming things, um, which no joke is how I got over my, even though I'm a chemist and people often think that that's difficult, there's something about programming. I was just like, that's, I don't, I had the same kind of thing. I'm like, man, I had to learn, you know, several new languages and, you know, even though I work with a lot of instruments, programming is not the same as being computer literate, right? <laughs> like mm. we're like, yep, I can turn this on and I know how to use this software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so um, it wasn't until, and of course I wish I would have, you know, known it for grad school, it would have made data analysis, see, you know, so much faster and easier, especially I look, I try not to look back on it now and I'm just like, nope, let's just, <laughs> move forward. Um, move forward. But I think part of it is the Lego versus poetry is is so good. And the idea too is I'm not going to be a computer scientist. Mm. I'm a chemist. And my thing is, what's the bit I can use to do this thing? And then maybe I'll have to learn another bit to do something else. Yeah. Um, but my expertise is not in that. My expertise is here, and to me, it is going to be a tool, um, just like if it's an organic chemist whose emphasis is on some new catalytic synthetic technique, they're not an expert in analytical. They use it as a tool, and if they have to go any deeper than that, they're going to have to call a friend, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> and so I think part of it, too, is thinking, I don't actually have to be an expert. And then once I realized, like Tessa was saying, is that because my first, you know, kind of foray into it, was, was um, a macro for image J and just changing one line. And I just Googled it and I was like, there's gotta be a way to do this. And I finally like, I just Googled it. I got stack exchange. I'm like, I, I copy pasted, I put it in and tried a couple. Okay. I got to tweak. Okay. What's the problem? Oh, semicolon. Uh, hit enter. The darn thing worked. And I'm like, that's it. And then the whole process took like, 10 minutes. Right. Right. And so then when that happens, you're like, I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I can do this computer programming uh, thing. You know, of course that's like nothing. Right. But then you realize I, Oh, I could do, I could, you know, again, for the level of which I'm at and what I'm going to utilize it for this is, then you just do a collection of those Legos. And then, you know, the tricky part as we found out in the workshops and just work is, smoothing out the transitions because sometimes all the legos they looked real pretty individually mm -hmm. they're not so cute when you draw them all together and that can be a real challenge mm -hmm. but i think little digestible problems and that's what i've also picked up from computer science colleagues and students is they're tiny digestible what can we do to break it up into tiny digestible steps mm -hmm. Um, and like Tessa was saying earlier, sometimes we think about the global system. We think about the system that we're examining rather than, but okay, but yeah, yeah, system. But what's here? What's starting here with the step? And then we can get to the system. Sometimes it, you know, we, it's just a different approach. And yeah. so that's been a big learning curve. And I only started doing it like, four, three, four years ago. Yeah. And I, I definitely would not say that I'm a computer scientist. Like, sure. I feel like a computer scientist ninja would come down and be like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that would be true. <laughs> I am just conjuring a, 
a um, visual in my mind for what a computer science ninja looks like. Uh, it's like some like Steve Wozniak. Uh, the stars are made out of those CDs that we don't use anymore. <laughs> That's great. They're, they're, they they're just like throwing them at old you. floppy disks. Um, that's amazing. Maybe and, a zip drive every right, once in a while. They have nunchucks, nunchucks made out of uh, you know circuit boards and, and joysticks. Um, that's amazing. Uh, so uh, there are a couple things you're saying that are that are. Um, are really important, but what I part of what I love about what you just said is that to you, you're not so much interested in in how um, you personally can become an expert computer scientist. It's more about how computer science expands the possibilities for you as a chemist, and um, yes. that seems like a really powerful thing. That uh, if we were back to the the fill in the blank. Um, that seems like a really powerful uh, thing. That that um, uh, so uh, the other piece that you were you were talking about that I want to ask more directly is that it it strikes me that you have a, a pretty specific answer to this. But do you think there's a there's a conversation in computer science education about uh, you know what's uh, I think. Ninja computer scientists know that that both are important, but there's also, I think, a, a few rungs below that. Um, there's a conversation about, you know, what's a lot of consideration, I should say, about what's more important at maybe a secondary level um, between code and computation, right? And and so is it the um, and so the difference for for those who are coming to this conversation brand new and and from neither of these spaces, the difference we're talking about is, do you go and learn um, a language like JavaScript, or are we more concerned with young people coming up with a lens that they can apply that's more about uh, how you break problems? Down um, and then go about solving and creating systems that um, can not only solve but then then uh, replicate and scale and and all kinds of interesting things. So so that's more computation. So um, anyway, to my question, this is a meandering way to get to the question, which is, do you two have a strong feeling about? Um, Maybe going back to thinking about your high school selves, would the right way have of introducing computer science have been for you the languages themselves or more about computation and the way of solving problems? Computation. I'm, a, I'm an applied scientist. I'm an analytical chemist for a reason. And I feel that computation gives me strategies and method and... and um, and then the to me the languages I've I've gone through a couple only because different things require different you know image J is this and now we're doing Python and and yet there's MATLAB which is a whole new level of circle of hell um, <laughs> don't tell anyone I said that um, and but the strategies even though the languages change the way to think about the problems the the stepwise approach. The breaking things down, and and we did a lot of whiteboard work in our boot camp, 
uh, uh, strategizing and almost storyboarding, which gets kind of back to almost screenwriting rather than novel, right? Like, let's just get the picture out and sketch something. What are we trying to accomplish here? Yeah. That would have been, I, I understand that. And also, I feel like I'm good at that. I never felt like I was good at literally any language. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I've got a, a, I think now I've fairly got a fairly good grasp on English, but, um, but that would have scared me to go that route. Yeah. Um, and I'm a, I was a chemistry math in college. The math thing though was it was always practical. I knew like it would help me do something. That's just, it works for me. And I feel like the students that are in my group, they see the usefulness of it to their thing yeah. and their thing might be very esoteric. But yeah. it's a tool that they can use. And that's, again, I'm dealing with chemists who want to utilize computation for this. So, you know, it's not just, again, it's a different framework. It's a different lens. And they, they already are coming in with that because they're, that's their major. And we're doing chemistry. And this is, uh, even biology, what cracks me up, up is even, Biology majors the first year are like, yeah, chemistry though is really going to help move chem and it's just it it becomes thing that helps you do the thing you're actually doing, not the other, mm-hmm. um, because that's just that's your lane, that's where you're at. So to me, that would have hooked me, um, but you know there are people that just love collecting languages. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's that's definitely not me. How about you, Tessa? And and so this is for you personally, but also, um, is it a different answer for for a biologist? No, it's so similar. Um, and it's you know, the thing is that is that the scientific process and how we approach problem solving it, it is kind of unique, like an artist. Like you might have different ways of going about that, but there's really some commonalities. And and what was really neat for me when, when we have we have a computational biologist here in the department and when I watch her working with students and they're gonna put some code together, the very she never lets them touch a computer. They actually do draw it out first. And you, and it's what's going on in your brain first that's gonna determine what goes on to that screen. Mm. And like and like Rachelle said, that's so edifying because oh, that's why I love science is because I like thinking about problems and I like um, piecing a logical argument together for what my data means, and you know that same skill set can be applied to that that compu- that's that computational thing that you're talking about is actually part of science too, and the, and that's how that's required before you can do any coding. So I wish that would have been made more apparent. Um, and I've talked to people in computer science, computer science faculty, and they they actually kind of lament. Um, their students' ability, their own major's ability to solve problems because they gain a really good appreciation for the languages that they're learning. Like they understand, like a linguist, do they understand how it's structured and how it works? But when it really comes to solving problems, they actually haven't learned that skill set that comes mm-hmm. really natural to a natural science major um, or a scientist. So, yeah, it's kind of that's a neat skill set. Yeah. It reminds me, like, Tessa, when you were talking to about the poetry, it reminds me of, I have a, a professor colleague in the humanities, and she's like, you know, they're very good technical writers. Like, they know all the rules of grammar and, and spelling, and, you know, they're majoring in English lit, but they couldn't persuade to 
their way out of a paperback, mm. right? Like they just, there's something else. There's the, you know, the rhetoric, the, you know, the, the oration, um, that is a different skill set, and you can be technically proficient, but what's all of the other stuff? Mm. Um, and, and those are just different skills and, you know, can we help with that? And so that's, that's why you and their majors, they have to, you can't just get away with just knowing the mechanics of writing, right? You have to talk about the ethos and, you know, you're talking, you're doing rhetoric and you're going to talk about persuasion and you're going to, you know, it's not just the, you know, can you assemble the words in the quote, right order? Yeah. There's this other art to it. Um, and I think part of it too, is being able to see how other people solve their problems visually. So I had the storyboarding, that's what, you know, it, it reminds me of is that the strategy there too, is that especially in chemistry, you don't just run into the lab and start mixing things together willy nilly. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't do that in, in, in how we do, you know, programming in my group either. Because not, you know, not that we're going to have any kind of critical blow up on, the, well, you know, uh, that you, on the on the thing. But I like it because it helps everyone go through the scientific process. Yeah. And I know that in my time and I can see it in my students, they have become better chemists. I have become a better chemist by picking up because it forces you to do certain things in a certain way. There's method. And that we're, we have a whole name for that method in science. Um, and sometimes we get a little sloppy. Mm. And I think in, in, the, in the programming, especially coming at it from being a chemist and trying to pick it up, is that, like, are you talking about Aaron, your colleague? Is mm. it, yeah, is, is that there's method to it. There's a strategy to it. There's a plan that we're going to look at. And we're going we're gonna to do our literary review and we're going we're gonna to talk about it. We're going to diagram it. Um, and then we're going to try it out. So, so um, you're you're yeah. saying, Rachel, that there's a there's a strong correlation between um, computation and the scientific method. I think I think so, and I think for me, it's made me a better chemist, and it's made my students better. I notice that their lab work is better. Not just their programming has improved, but literally their strategy and their thoughtfulness and the rigor of which they approach all of their work because mm. once you're going through it for this it leads over right into every area if you get that if, if you're indoctrinated into a sort of a, a rigid you know structure in a way of, of we're going to do this and then we're going to talk about it and we're going to present it and then we're going to diagram it and then you start doing that you know which i've always you know tried again to do so just don't run into the lab and start doing something why are you going to do it let's talk about why you're going to do it and this the programming in the divas program for myself has made me go back to the fundamentals and it continuously makes my students go back to the fundamentals of, of that process yeah um and so it's i think it's it's made everybody better there at their you know their whole professionalism so um i think that's a terrific place for us to wind down um, I know the two of you are still enjoying, hopefully, uh, the calm before the spring semester storm. So um, I wish you both a little bit more, a little bit more quiet before that comes. <laughs> um, I want to say uh, for for one, just 
how grateful I am uh, to have your time. Uh, we, I spend, as somebody who works in um, K-12 education at a nonprofit that is um, really focused on equity and STEM, uh, to have the time and to talk about this, not only with two um, scientists who are doing amazing work, but to talk with two women in science who are doing this amazing work, it's, um, it, I'm just really grateful. And and it's important to me that um, we also use the opportunity to uh, just surface um, what important work you guys are doing, and I will just say, Rachelle, and I'm sure uh, Tessa, we could we could spend another episode talking about uh, who the two of you are outside of your science. But I happen to know Rachelle, uh, you are also the founder of a pretty amazing um, organization. Do you want to say just a word about uh, Geek Girl Con? Uh, <laughs> I didn't found Geek Girl Con, but I I do manage the Do It Yourself Science Zone at GeekGirlCon, yeah. which is a two-day experimental space where attendees at the conference, it's like a New York City Comic-Con or, or Comic-Con yes. at San Diego, where folks can come in and they can do all kinds of experiments. We had entomologists and 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 uh, we had astronomers and, and I was there. I mean, you know, about 12, 15 different, you know, demo slash experiments that folks can do to, of all ages, um, and really get their hands dirty with science, including programming um, and math. Uh, and so to really get them in there and have fun with it and have them meet scientists and have them see that they look like me, um, they sound like me, I could do this job, it's actually kind of fun. Um, and so we've been, uh, we celebrated our fifth year this last year. And so we plan to be back for year six. Huge congratulations. Uh, if if somebody wanted to get in, so if there are uh, folks, uh, either science educators or scientists who are listening to the podcast, who hear about that, who wanted to get involved, is there a place that they could go uh, to learn more about it? Sure. You know what? If you just go to geekgirlcon.com um, and put DIY Science Zone, or if you just Google that, you will top hits, luckily, um, are, are us. And it definitely says in there, you know, how to get in touch, and it would be great to have you. Outstanding. And and Tessa, any place that uh, you want to point people to follow your work or what's happening at Doan? Um, I would say maybe if you're interested in the Divas Project, just um, Diva Science is our Twitter handle, so D-I-V-A Science. Um, check us out there, and if you're ever taking an image, and you're kind of, you know, start taking images that you think have cool data on them, and you know, maybe tweet them to do the science and yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> it's outstanding That'd be and awesome. And for those who are for who are first uh, through this, learning about Doan, uh, Doan is a university in Nebraska. Um, mm-hmm. And you can also check them out, and I will link to you all in the um, show notes. Thank you two so much for this. I really appreciate it, and I think that uh, people are going to appreciate the conversation about computer science uh, in science uh, from the perspective of scientists so much. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. 
No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. This podcast was produced in partnership with Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us on the web at mouse.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode zero, and Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats.